Hello, hi. I hope you're relaxed. I hope you are good. And welcome to the sixth episode of the African Film Podcast. This is the first time you're with the African Film Podcast. This is a space where we explore African cinema through film recommendations, as well as pertinent conversations with practicing practitioners within the field. So usually what happens is that we start with the film recommendation and then we get to the conversation. So for today's film recommendation, for our film recommendation, we are traveling back to West Africa for the first time in quite a while with our first Nigerian film. Citation. So Citation is a film which came out this year on Netflix and was written by Tunde Babalola, directed by Kunle Afaloyan and starring Jimmy John Lewis and Temi Otodola as the lead characters. The film brings us into the world of academia through the eyes of a 20-year-old master's grad student and current PhD hopeful by the name of Moreni, played by Tomi Otodola. She's a very precocious student, she's the youngest in the class and is very outspoken and this very quickly gets the attention of one of her tutors by the name of Dr. Ndiare, played by Jimmy John Lewis. Citation not only brings us into the world of academia but specifically into the sexual assault dynamics that can occur within academia through a professor and a student. As Professor Ndiare attempts to rape Morimi and the film Texas through the grooming process in which he attempts to do so. The main story device in which this is explored is under the guise of an in-house university trial as Morimi accuses the professor of not only sexual assault but attempting to fail her after denying his advances. So we're brought into a context that is very much he said, she said, as the board asks both Marimi and Professor Ndiare questions about the relationship, how it formed, how it got to the place where it is so that they can figure out exactly what happened. And at the crux, that is the basic premise of this film. Good morning, class. We are in the presence of academic royalty. Professor Lucien Ndiari. Everyone is impressed with his credentials. Sorry, I didn't get your name. Morimi Oluwa. Premier chapitre, excellent. Merci, professeur. Vous savez, quand c'est juste nous, vous m'appelez Lucien. My first one-on-one -on -one contact with Professor Ndiari was after a tutorial class. She pulled down her pants and showed me her. A glimpse of her underwear. Everyone on campus is staring at me. Your story has gone viral. We need the noise. And we salute you for taking a start for all the females on campus. Be careful you're not being used. Part of her story is accurate, but the rest is a complete figment of Miss Aloha's fertile imagination. One more moment, Professor. They all think they can swim until somebody drowns. I'm saying he attempted to rape me. It was she who offered sex to me. It was I who rejected it. So infused into the story outside of the premise of sexual um, assault, the film really does take great care into exploring West African culture and bringing you into like the different types of experiences that one can have, both in terms of sightseeing and all those elements of culture. And I really enjoyed that aspect. However, I will say that the film is two and a half hours long. So if this is a film which you do want to watch, you do need to set a lot of time to get through it. And that is Citation, which is currently available on Netflix. 
Our guest this week is Adwa Ankoma and she brings us into the world of entertainment and specifically film law as she is a film advocate as well as a recent master's graduate. In my opinion, this is one of our most insightful episodes and at least for me it was one of the most educational as she brings us into the world of film law. Our conversation is very expansive. It goes over things like contracting, the dynamics and thinking that goes behind contracting, the state and the foundation of our film industry both within a South African perspective, also relating it to an African perspective. What are some of the things that we can do as creatives to better position ourselves and also become more favorable to become a sustainable industry? What are some of the things that we can do to become better film advocates and exactly what that means? I do believe this is a very important conversation and I do implore you to check it out. Yet again, the guest is Ajwa Nkoma and this is the sixth episode of the African Film Podcast. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to African Film. This episode was sponsored by the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. I am very excited about this talk because it is with someone who is a part of the industry, which I am very much fascinated with, but know very little about. And this is entertainment law. So we are speaking with Adwa Ankoma, who is very much a venerated person within this field. I mean, she's, she does legal consultancy. If you look her up, you'll find her within the Arterial Network. She's done work for the NFVF. She has her own firm by the name of Creatives Represented. And very much so, she is a cinephile in her own right because how I came to know of her was during the actual African Film Club. She was one of the most active participants within the actual club specifically on the online perspective. So that's where I found out about it. And I saw, oh wait, lawyer. I'm like, oh wait, hold Hold on, there's a lawyer here. Okay, cool. <laughs> Maybe we can use this at, 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 at some point within the future. So I'm very excited she can fill out the rest of what I don't know about her because this is the first time we're speaking. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Adwa, how are you doing? Good, thanks. And you, I'm just going to correct you on my name. It's Adwa, like a J. Adwa. It's a Ghanaian name. I yeah, see. The D, the w, make a J sound. Okay, can I read this entire intro? <laughs> No, it's fine. It's like Ajua, like a J. It's I, I. We can move on. I really don't. It's very simple. It's two syllables. Ajua, like a J. You were really, really close. Ajua, 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 Ankoma. Did you grow up in Ghana? I grew up in South Africa, born and raised in Joburg. My father is Ghanaian. I have been to Ghana quite a few times because uh, obviously my whole other family is there. But I grew up in South Africa, born and raised born and raised in South Africa and now studying at UCLA. Just finished studying at UCLA. So I got my master's in entertainment and tech law and policy at UCLA. And I'm now doing post-academic training through a fellowship at a global NPO that is focused on internet freedom and knowledge freedom. Congratulations, by the way, that that is quite an achievement. So can you bring us into, because entertainment law, because I know, yeah, entertainment law is something which is very specific, but I want to understand how it is that you just, how you got into the journey of deciding to wanting to become a entertainment lawyer. What was that like for, what was the instigating factor? Well, you know, actually I don't really like the term entertainment law. I think it's quite limiting and 
Honestly, I think that as a lawyer who practices and is primarily focused on the African continent, I don't really think it's suitable for our context. We have more of a creative and cultural industry, which I think is beyond entertainment. You know, like in the States, entertainment really encompasses like music, movies, but also sports, and it has a different value. And I think they create differently. And so with us, I think our creative input is more reflective of like culture and creation of identity, creation of an African identity. Often our content is an exploration of the past. And so I don't know, it, part of my advocacy is more to say that I'm a lawyer who works in the creative and cultural industries rather than to say entertainment law, because I'm not, I'm not really focused on sports. I'm not really focused on fashion. I'm not really focused on art law. And yet in the States, if you said someone was an entertainment lawyer, they'd be encompassing all those things. So yeah, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. But anyway, that's not answering your question. I have always been interested in the creative and cultural industries. I was very interested in them before I even went to university, before I became a lawyer. I went to a really good school called Sacred Heart College. And people may not know this, but back in the day, it used to be like a low key feeder to the National School of Arts. So we had a lot of opportunity to explore our own like artistic works. We were able to create plays, people made films. And so that was really my input into it. I think a lot of people who I know who work in the film and television industry in South Africa, I know from school. And so that was always something that was I was very interested in. When I was younger, I actually wanted to become an editor. Oh, and let me let me say I thought about it. Like it was something that I really grappled with. I chose law because I think it allowed me, it really allows you to sort of travel through many different industries in a way that a lot of other professions don't really have the opportunity to do so. I knew that I really, really liked the creative and cultural industries, but I was working in law. And so I was constantly like upskilling, you know, I took tax courses, I took constitutional law courses, IP courses, all the kind of things that I thought if and when I'm ready to make the lateral leap into the creative and cultural industries, these are the kind of skills that I want to position myself around. And so starting, I had friends, I have a really good friend, Kagaza Tembu, and she was co-founder of a poetry collective called Word and Sound. And so I would work with them as a legal resource and do like little legal workshops for them. I was always looking out for and in. Even before I started studying law, I would email lots of people I thought were working in the industry from a legal standpoint and like just ask them, you know, can I job shadow you? What are you doing? Really networking with a lot of people that I've had the opportunity to now work with. And then when an advert came up for the National Film and Video Foundation for a legal and policy role, I was like, cool, here's my opportunity because these roles are few and far between. And I think we'll discuss that later. There's not a lot happening. And so when I saw that role I was like cool let me make this lateral leap now I feel ready and that was sort of my journey I see with regards to your comment on law one of the things that I've heard is that if you want to work in almost any industry there are two jobs that you can do that can almost kind of allow you to explore and that's law and accounting within both those two industries if you're an accountant or if you're in law you're able to kind of jump in and out of different spaces because you're your work is always needed somewhere. It's beyond that your work is always needed. I think it speaks to the personality who studies law. If you're a lawyer, 
<laughs> and if you're a good lawyer, I think, you're curious inherently. You want to know more. You want to know more about how the world works, why the world works. I often say this, that a law is reflective of a society's values. And so, you know, different industries, they position themselves and obviously they need lawyers to sort of like mitigate the risks. But that's really a person who's saying, how does this thing work and how can we make it better? And that's often where the law comes in. So I think it draws people that are like curious about the way that the world works. And I think that if you craft your legal career in a certain kind of way, you do allow yourself the opportunity to move fluidly through different industries that you are curious about. I mean, we grow and we have different interests. And so hopefully it allows you to move. Now, I'm very curious because I remember one of when we were still doing the the club as an active entity, one of the, the films that you wanted us to kind of put up was Sarafina. But that might not actually be your favorite film. What is your current favorite African film and why? Oh, my gosh. I actually really tried hard to answer that question. And I think <laughs> you're going to be so disappointed in me because it's just too hard for me to choose. Okay, so I, what, what I'm going to say is what I've literally told, I think, almost everyone is I don't think you need to attack this from a standpoint of saying that this is the greatest African film that I'm putting. No, but even on. just so the thing is, even if I were to say what would I recommend that you watch if you haven't watched any South African film, it's a difficult question. A, because like, what genre are we talking about? Are we talking about fiction? Are we talking about nonfiction? And also because our film industry is so small still, every good film has become like a seminal work, you know? So everything has been like genre redefining, you know, whether it's like Inamba Namba or Jerusalem or like Nectar Youth, all of these films have been like genre defining. So it becomes really hard for me to be like, okay, cool. If you haven't watched a South African film, this is the one that you should go to. Because it's like, how do you say that when there's so many others that I think are, you, you see, know, tied? a lot of pressure on the question. It's literally just about your current favorite. Because what Sam Soko did in his episode is he gave us both one documentary or one nonfiction and fiction to kind of say, this is my favorite current fiction and this is my favorite nonfiction. Within within these episodes, we've gone all the way from happiness is a four-letter word, even with the club, like we're exploring a lot. So don't put pressure on thinking that this is just like the defining recommendation. Just right now, even if it's in 2020 or a movie you watched three weeks ago that you were like, wow, what is that film? That the, the first film that popped into your head. It's not the first film that popped into my head, but the last film that I reviewed was Shepherds and Butchers. So I have a curiosity in general about the experience of white South Africans pre-1994. I think that white South Africans have a reluctancy to explore themselves, their identity and their own pain and yeah, pain from their vantage point, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that as a collective, white South Africa is still a bit defensive about the past. And I think that we're in a place where we just need to know what happened, you know? So films like Shepherds and Butchers, also an act of defiance, for me as a Black South African really gave me like just a little bit more understanding. There was also that other film, Forgiveness, way, way, way back in the day. Same kind of genre where it's like, 
white South Africa. It was, it was, was forgiveness the one where it, it was the white kid and the black kid and they, were, they grew up as kids and then they found themselves on opposite side of the, sides of the law and they were adults or something like that? So I don't really remember movies like that. I sort of just remember like performance. <laughs> And I really, I just, if you know me, I have a very bad memory. So like, if you were to ask me like plot line, that's not me. But anyway, these three films, I think, really try to look at like, what it was like to be a young white South African straddling this thing between being like a human who knows what should be done, who knows right from wrong, who knows pain happening around them pain may be happening because of them, but at the same time as part of a collective that is defending an indefensible position. And Shepherds and Butchers, oh, it really goes into capital punishment, the death penalty, looking at who had to be the foot soldiers of that exercise and what it did to those people who are still alive today. I mean, these are people in their like, what, 50s and 60s walking around us whose jobs It used to be to kill people and not even necessarily because they wanted to, you know, often a lot of the white South Africans that couldn't escape those jobs tended to be those who had less power than most. You know, if you were probably a richer liberal white South Africans, you found a way to not go to the army or not participate, you know, in the the really cruel part of the apartheid exercise. And so this film really goes into it and without get without even being apologetic about it, because what apologies can be made? It really just goes to say, what was the human experience of playing that role in that autocratic regime? 164 men were executed last year. I know what happens on death row. Was that all of the executions? These waters, they get to know the men that they're gonna hang. Anything worse than killing a stranger is killing someone you know. They threw this boy into hell at 17. Now he can't speak a word to defend himself. The quarry, what occurred there? I can't remember. That man must pay for what he's done. Two years ago, you were a school prefect. You were a husband and father. And now here you are on trial for murder. How did that happen? What did you experience on your first day at Maximum? Were you ever screened or assessed in any way to ensure you were suitable for this work? I can't get through to him unless I know what's going on inside his head. Tell us what happened. The reasons you fired those shots. Why didn't you talk to the warrant officer about seeking help? A psychiatrist could have helped you. Why didn't you tell me before I started hurting my wife? Before I lost everything? killed seven people that is enough there was a point i think before i went to university where i'd watched basically every movie that came out because i'm an only child so my mom would drop me off at the movies all the time on like a saturday and i'd watch like a double bill or a triple bill every weekend i also rented movies you know they used to have like those weekend specials at like a lot of these dvd and like back in the day the video higher places yeah and on thursdays yeah and so i would get like the three or the five every weekend and then also go to the movies every weekend and watch like three so or you four. have gone through the depths of so you've seen the best and the worst i've seen everything the- <laughs> i've seen everything except for horror and 
like really scary thrillers because I don't really have I can't watch those movies so that's just a genre that I I've steered clear of also when I was really young I used to love watching Barry Ronger and reading Peter Travers he used to do the reviews in Rolling Stone Rolling Stone magazine yeah yeah and so I used to read like every single every single review he wrote and I used to watch Barry Ronger all the time and for me it was slant magazine and av club i used to also used to read a lot of barry ranga and then just that was and roger ebert when he was still um (laughs) with us like i'd 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 read a lot of his reviews and that started building my understanding of how you can look at film because i think a lot of people think there's there's so many ways that you can look at film and that's that's one of the things which i find really most intriguing about it because we all have different points of view and even I as a writer the way I see film I can see a film and call this a great film and then a cinematographer would be like now that film was trash there, there are so many entry points and access points of which you can actually view a film which I always find very very fascinating at some point I even tried to start writing reviews I used to write them under a thing called film on the brain I wrote like a few and then I just got over it it's not something that I would say I completely let go but I didn't I didn't like persist consistently so every now once in a while if I do watch something that really resonates with me I may like post something about it or blog about it but it's not something that I was like okay cool every single film that comes out let me write a review within your experience how expansive have you found the South African industry when it comes to things like entertainment or like what is the current landscape like and do you think that we pay enough attention to it I don't think specifically that we, from a filmmaker's perspective. Sorry. I don't think that we pay enough attention to it. I think that somehow the advisory part of filmmaking, the engaging other professionals, somehow that became optional in the mind of many filmmakers. And that's everything from a lawyer to an accountant, right? Yeah. And I'm not really sure why, because it's really something that's very unique to the creative industries because if for instance my mother she owns a bakery she would never think of doing her books alone it wouldn't even cross her mind and that's from the beginning of opening her bakery I don't really understand what the motivation is in this particular industry where people think that they can do it themselves without the expertise because I know within my specific experience, I realized that a lot of the time, at least when we start out, a lot of people don't understand the scope of what it is that they're getting themselves into. Even specifically, let's say if it's within a deal or what a commission deal en- encompasses or what this means or what that means. And that when you're selling your story, you are selling your story. It doesn't belong to you anymore, specifically if you're working within a commissioning system, because our commission act is quite all encompassing. <laughs> In terms of all the things that it talks about, because I think even in some in some contracts, they even state as well as inventions or technologies which may have not then been thought of right now. When it's talking about all the copyrights that you're giving away, it then even adds that specific element. Because I do think that we don't talk about law enough, or if not talk about it, but to kind of understand what is at play when you're at when you're creative, when you're going for one deal as opposed to another deal. How would you describe the difference, uh, the differences even from a law perspective between something like a commission and something which is more license-based? So commissioning is when someone, and I hate to use the word again, commissions your work. So it means that they completely fund, they completely direct, they completely control the work. And so whatever you're producing is at their control. You're essentially a work for hire 
And I hate to use that phrase because we don't actually have it in our law in South Africa. It's actually an American phrase. A lot of people see it in their contracts, but we have no basis for it in our own law. But essentially, you're a hired gun. And so that is why you don't often retain the rights in a commissioning structure because someone else has created the concept And then you're just someone that they're hiring, like a consultant or a contractor to execute. That is how it was originally formulated. The problem is that that's not really how it's playing out. And so that is why in the current Copyright Amendment Bill, you will see that there are some changes around that commissioning structure. And how that comes is because, so in the UK they really discovered that many of your independent filmmakers were growing through commissioned works, right? They didn't make, they maybe didn't have access to big budgets yet. They couldn't make the films on their own, but how they were growing their craft was through commissioned works. But now they weren't retaining any of the copyright because they were always hired guns. And so they weren't really able to leverage anything after they created the work. They couldn't, they didn't have any control over the work. So we, in our, in our current um, version, proposed version of the Copyright Amendment Bill, you'll see that there is a amendment to try and restrict the scope of future control of that commission work so that you can only retain control for the reason that you commissioned it. If you commissioned work for a 10-part documentary series to be frighted on a broadcaster, then you hire someone as a hired gun to create one of those documentaries. But when now you want to use it in a different forum, so now you want to use it as part of a web series or to create a different character or something, then a new conversation needs to happen. That's what commissioning originally is. You're a hired gun. And so there should be no expectation in the original version of commissioning of you actually owning the work because you didn't really conceive the concept. When you license something, you're talking about something that you created, you own, and now you're setting terms on which another person can use your work, can broadcast your work, can show your work. You could also sell something outright with like no backend. Some of the streamers do it that way where they purchase content outright and then they can decide when and how where they want to flight that content. In terms of the onerous provisions, like it's to be used in the future or it's to be used like worldwide and everywhere in every territory, that is just about the person who is purchasing the content or the person who commissioned the work wanting to mitigate their risks. So we know that technology has evolved just in the past maybe 20 years completely inconceivable from what we would have thought 20 years ago. And that's what people who are funders are saying. They're saying, I know that we have television right now, but I don't know what the technology of the future is going to look like. I have no idea. I don't know how much it's going to be worth. I have no idea. But I would like to make content right now. But if things change really quickly, I would like to use that content on those future platforms that I can't imagine what they may look like, a quibby or whatever. And so that's why you see those kind of provisions in the contract. So it becomes an interplay, depending on the balance of powers when you're contracting to say, how much does the person who's creating the content retain? But that is also based on how much control they have over the content. If you are really being commissioned, you don't really have a lot of control. You can't decide if you've been commissioned to create a documentary film 
for a 10 part human rights documentary film, you can't decide to just go and make a documentary about like a tortoise. Right. So you've lost that element of control. You're also not funding it. Someone is completely paying outright for what you're doing. So that's where that like, they would want to push for having as many rights as possible as many territories as possible and it's you as the content creator who needs to then push back on that to say no you say you only want it for this specific place you only want it for this specific territory i'm only going to give you this so none of these things are set in stone we don't have like any prescriptions for that contract we have different broadcasters that have the way that they choose to buy content or to license content but we don't have any law that's in stone that says that you cannot negotiate one way or the other. Yeah. So that's, that would also then be where stuff like representation then comes in when you've got a specific type of contract to then state, because I believe I saw a stat, which did say that over 90% of South African content, specifically television content is purely based upon commissioned work. And when you're talking about hired guns, we are very much a hired gun industry, if that's the analogy that you'd like to use. And that from a creative perspective, there's a lot of work, but there's not much ownership and or control of that work from a creative perspective. Yes, exactly. And that control is because of the way that we've, we have not organized or structured our industry. And this is why I say that there's there's a big distinction between the way that the U.S. works and where we currently are. It's not to say that we could not professionalize in the same way. But for instance, in the U.S., the writer is a king, right? The writer has far more respect than we could ever imagine a writer having in South Africa. They, The way that they look at work, just by having created a work, a writer is seen as being in control. And the way that they're approached by funders, by buyers is as if they are a person who controls their work. For us, we really see writers as hired guns. That is because we have an industry that historically had one major funder, which was the national broadcaster. Yeah, We had one set of channels, which was your national broadcaster channels, and no other money was really coming from anywhere else to come and fund independent film. So that national broadcaster was able to create a library, create their own set of rules, as any organization would do. And then content creators just participated in the rules that were then created. But we never had our own organizing or advocacy to push back on those rules, to collectively bargain, because that's essentially what happened in the U.S., is that different participants in the film industry organized their own selves. The writers organized themselves, the directors organized themselves, the people who work on set, the crew organized themselves, and then they then were able to push back on the terms set by whoever is funding the film. And our problem is not necessarily the commissioning structure, because like I say, freedom of contract always exists. The problem is you don't really have the power to bargain. Yes. Mainly because you're bargaining as an individual. If people were able to get themselves together and then be approaching the broadcaster as a single entity. And again, like I say, breaking us, not just as a film industry, because also within the industry, you have different moving parts. The advocacy of a producer is very different from the advocacy of a writer is very different from an advocacy of an actor and yet those groups are not really organized in a very powerful way so that they can move the guidelines and the rules that are currently in place to evolve with the times 
This season's interviews were primarily recorded remotely via Zoom during September and October 2020. The African Film Podcast is produced by Enraptured Odyssey, a media company based in Alberton, South Africa. To find out more on African Film and Enraptured Odyssey, you can go to their website, enraptured.africa, and you can also follow their social pages at African Film, that's A-F-R-I-Q-U-A-N, Film, on social media sites for more fun film facts. So then what protection agencies are then what are the roles of the various guilds? Because we do have a writer's guild, a producer's guild, a director's guild, and even down to things like Dauro. So what, uh, okay, well, I think Dauro isn't necessarily a guild. It works within a, a different framework. But then, so then what do become the purpose of protection agencies or guilds like the various guilds, which I've just mentioned? So the guilds exist, but I think they exist very differently to how they don't exist as, as unions, Right. So the guilds that you have in the US, and I think that people confuse the two because they sort of have the same name, but those guilds are unions. You know, they have pension funds, they have lawyers, they are unions, and their job is to create favorable positions for their paying members, right? Yeah. And people don't work without their union card, they, they don't go on set without their union card, and so... Every single year, these unions have these, well, not every single year, I think they're every three years, these unions have these massive negotiations with all of the different moving parts. So the Writers Guild will negotiate with the Directors Guild, and then they will negotiate with... You're currently speaking with an American perspective, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and and I'm only saying this so that we can see what we currently have Are they playing that position? Should they play that position? What would it take for them to play that position? See what I'm saying? Yeah. We have the expectation of those guilds, but we don't have the organizing of those guilds. So we don't have a guild that says that if you are not part of the guild, you can't go on set. You know what I mean? We don't have anything like that. We don't have a guild that is pushing in employment law and that has collective bargaining agreements with different broadcasters or with different funders. We don't really have that. We have collection societies that operate in distribution. So I think that's like Dalro. And then you have the Writers Guild, Producers Guild, which do advocacy work, but I don't think that they operate as unions as the other guilds do. They operate more as collectives that maybe support each other in different ways, but they're not really trying to enter as a union. And I think, yeah, that's the big difference. In terms of what is available, I think every year we're seeing more and more. I mean, just this week, I saw that there's a legal consultancy, I forget her name, and she's now created a suite of contracts for entertainment industries. The company is called Yat. Teletata. So she's created a, a suite of contracts specifically for the South African creative industries. You've got legalese, they do a lot of legal consultancy, but I don't think that the guilds are operating in that way. And the guilds are just, it's a name, right? But it's not a restriction. So I think that it is a valuable time for the South African and perhaps beyond, because I think that economies of scale really factor in here for the African creative industries to organize themselves 
and become real unions that say that we're going to shut down an industry. That's the difference is that we're comparing with like the US Guild, but they've already shown that if you do not meet their terms, they're willing to shut this whole thing down yeah, and stop the flow of content. We've never been able to show that. So again, we're not really creating any bargaining power because we've never really shown what is our power. If a broadcaster says, no, I don't want those terms, what do we do about it? Nothing. So then they just give us the terms that they want and there isn't really any room for us to push back because we haven't really shown what are the consequences of not bargaining in our favor. It's really incumbent on the local industry, South African industry, African industries, to organize themselves and to create that kind of bargaining power because none of these things are set in stone. They have the opportunity. They have freedom of contract. They just need to collectively bargain. Yeah, because in the example which you just gave, I know within conversations that I've, I don't say necessarily been a part of, but I've been privy to listening to that um, assumption does kind of play that if I don't take this contract, there are about 15 other production companies behind me that will. So even if I say no, then this thing is still going to happen. And since we're at a place where I think we still have very few, if we're comparing to more developed nations, we have technically still very few customers that we then feel that the bargaining power is necessarily within our favor compared to how many production companies actually exist in terms of assumptions and things which I've heard and that another show can come and literally replace us that quickly because yet again that collective bargaining or the conversation where we kind of say if this if this doesn't happen for this then it's done well not then it's done then there will be consequences, at least on a creative perspective, as opposed to just consequences on a broadcasting perspective. I don't really think that that speaks to our lack of customers. I don't think that it's an issue. I think that people that watch the content, that love South African content, um, specifically love South African content. They want South African content. Just because you have one really good customer doesn't mean that you're sort of on a back foot. I think that it actually should make it easier for us to organize, right? Because we only have one customer and the people who are watching, and it's not just one customer, there are like a few different platforms on the African continent, yeah. but they're few. But people who are watching that content, people who want to watch African television, Nigerian movies, Egyptian film, they only want to watch those films. They actually don't want to watch. They're not interested in anything else. So I think the bargaining, the opportunity to really elevate your bargaining standpoint exists because people who love our content really love our content. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so to look at who the client is, the customer, I think it's a bit of a red herring and really the focus just needs to be amongst the industry to say, I'll be willing to take a hit in the short term to be more organized, to to participate fully in the long term. And I think that that conversation, I don't know that that conversation has really been had because this thing of saying, oh, there's someone else means that you're not organized. It means that you as an organizer have not done the work of convincing everyone who is your constituency why they should stand with you, why they should move when you move. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I completely get you. Once, yeah, and so once that, and that's why I say, like, we have the lessons. We have so many other jurisdictions who have done that hard work of organizing, of professionalizing, of saying, we only move when this moves. And maybe it came out of necessity, 
And there's often an argument of, because of the way that things are funded in South Africa and particularly, perhaps that necessity doesn't really exist. Wait, can you just elaborate on that statement, sorry? Contrary to popular opinion, we have many, many, many different opportunities for funding in South Africa. We have a national funding body, we have provincial funding bodies, we have different organizations that fund based on affinity groups and identity politics. Yeah, we actually have a bigger pool of funding based on you being able to just put together an application. So there's less need for you to actually organize yourselves because anyone can sort of qualify. A lot of these other, again, to use the US example, they have like a, a much, not as easy a funding pool. And a lot of these unions that were created was because they didn't have protections, you know, because actors didn't have protectors, because because people who worked as stunt people didn't have protections. They decided that they're going to organize because otherwise they were exploited. And I think, I don't know, I don't know why, but I have a sense that in South Africa, that desperation to say, is it desperation or it's a sense of this is not so bad that it's untenable. And so people continue to work within this framework. Because you feel like you have multiple options. There are options. It's, I mean, they, yeah. you, I, I don't think people realize how few countries have so many funding bodies. We have development agencies willing to fund. We have funding based on like different countries. You know, you've got like the British Council funding, Gutter funding, the IFAS funding. You've got so many pools of funding that I think then there is no need. There's no need to really organize. There is a need, but I think there's, there's not that desperation to halt, to grind everything to a stop and say, we are only going to move forward One in table. this kind of way. So for the people who may be listening and are filmmakers and don't know these bodies, can you name some of them? Well, I know you've just named a few, but like to kind of describe what these kind of bodies are and you mentioned, because I know there's the NFEF, you just mentioned the Goethe Institute, because I know they do a lot, even specifically with like culturally. um... Animation. Yeah. I mean, so I would say, there's the National Film Foundation, there's the KZN Film Commission, the Gauteng Film Commission, there's Westgro in the Western Cape. I know that something is coming up in the Northwest and also in Limpopo. There's those country institutes like the British Council, Kuta Institute, IFAS. Depending on your identity politics, you have like people that fund LGBTQ films, you have people that are funding films based on political history. Yeah, there's many different funding pools. In terms of organization, I think we also should mention the, what is the Black Film Collective? The one that does the Black Filmmakers Fund with the NFEF. Yeah, but they don't just do with the NFEF. They're their own separate entity. It's the Independent Black Filmmakers Collective. They're a really good one. We all know IPO, Independent Producers, SWIFT. Really good one for the women who work in in film and television. Animation essay, really good for people who are working in animation. And then, like, you did mention the guild, the writers' guild. There's an actors' guild. Yeah, so there are many different organizations. I think that the job now is on people who are in the film industry to join those organizations because they do work, a lot of them, on a voluntary basis because they don't charge membership fees. 
but to capacitate them to join these organizations, capacitate them to start paying fees so that they can hire lawyers, hire accountants, hire the people that they need so that they can create the bargaining power that is necessary. I mean, if you look at the guilds that are working in the US, those people have accountants, they have actuaries, they have lawyers, because when they're negotiating with the different broadcasters, they're negotiating with facts and data. You yeah. know? You're saying I'm worth this much. What I'm creating for you is worth this much. What you're going to make from what I give you is this much. And that's why I want this share of the pie. And we need to get to that point. And that means organizing, but it also means paying, you know, putting money towards that organization so that we can get people who can speak to the numbers, who can speak to the regulatory systems, to the policies that are in place. And we have data when we negotiate. And I would also say to participate in the initiatives of all of these bodies that I've listed. A lot of them do many panels. They have so many initiatives. And when it's time for filmmakers to start talking about the framework of filmmaking, the voice becomes a bit of a whisper. There's less excitement, you know? And I think that that's sometimes why these conversations don't really move forward. But we have so many opportunities. I mean, this year, I think with the pandemic, for instance, filmmakers realizing how detrimental it is that filmmakers don't pay UIF. So there was no recourse to go and just claim your UIF when there was now no work. Organizing around that. There's also the opportunity to organize and approach medical insurance, organize and approach pension funds. I mean, that's what the, like the guilds in the US have done. They've said, we know that our members work sporadically. We know that this is the way, the pattern that they earn. But we can go and we can approach a particular organization, particularly a company and say, we have 20,000 members. This is what on average their annual earnings are. Can you offer us a specialist, you know, package. package that works for our members? And that's the kind of organizing I mean, is that like, so that you participate because once the film industry becomes a worthwhile customer to all of these other support services, you'll find that they will advocate for you. Because if every single film is using film insurance, right? Once that becomes an issue, you'll find that those insurers become advocates of the film industry. Because they have a vested um, interest the in the ecosystem. Because they have a vested interest. And this is exactly how other um, niche industries sort of have grown, right? If you look at like maritime law, shipping, or whatever, it's because all of those different industries have hired other people. When things go wrong, it's the support industries around them that say, okay, fine, where's the solution? Because you want it to be profitable. It only works if it works for everyone. But I think because filmmakers are not, A, they're not hiring those services, so there's no interest. And then also are not organized and organized where they have facts, where they have data. And they're using that as a bargaining power. Also willing to in the short term, really do the, the work of organizing and also hold the picket line so that if you say you're going to grind to a halt and no one's going to work, then no one works. I think that that's sort of the thing that needs to happen so that all of these other industries can be motivated to work for the film industry. So then what I want to get into more, since we've spoken about a lot of initiatives, I know that you're currently part of multiple initiatives, including none that you have, which is Creative Represented. Can you tell us a little bit more about those as well as the journey you've had with the NFEF and some of the things you may have learned 
about the film industry from that that may be of value to our, our listeners? Okay, yeah, I can talk about that. I can't, I must say, I can't speak on behalf of the NFEF because I haven't worked there for two years. And so I don't know what they're currently doing. I mean, I follow their accounts on social media. I would encourage everyone to do so. Also to regularly check their website because they do a lot of work. And I think that they, again, are a body that would really benefit from the entire industry getting behind them and not just because they want money from them. Yeah, They need to show that they have a huge consistency behind them to do as simple a thing as up their budget. You know, the NSVF is completely funded by Treasury through the, uh, the Department of Arts and Culture, but their funding hasn't really changed in the last few years, despite the excellent output that's happening from the South African film industry. So I think that that's another place that the industry needs to like put itself behind and get involved, get involved in when they're making submissions on, on, on like legislative submissions, when they're doing policy work, get involved, find out, be curious, become a worthwhile like constituency so that when the NFF is representing the industry and saying to Treasury they need more money, pushing for finalization on like certain policies, pushing for legislation, then they can tangibly so that they represent this huge, large industry behind them which I think that often they don't. People really only, not only, but mostly engage the NFF. Yeah, when they want grant funding or funding. It's, it's, it's such a small part of what they do. They put out research. So some of the initiatives that I was really proud to be involved with was the research together with SWIFT around gender in the film industry and the participation of women in the film industry. They were doing some really amazing work, like even something as granular as seeing how often do women speak in film and television in South Africa? You know, if there's a program, how many words are being said by women and counting those words? What is the experience of women in set? We've heard, we know about the gender-based violence crisis in our country and that it also permeates throughout the industry. Making sure that the policies of the work, the contracts within the NFEF are gender conscious also historical redress, often that historical redress is being achieved through tagging certain imperatives to funding. So trying to ensure that when not just, and I, this is why I want to move away from the NFF, but not beyond them, trying to ensure that when content is funded in, the, in South Africa, that there is an obligation for those who receive funding to develop others, create historical redress. I think that's also why you're seeing the funding move outside of the big cities, outside of Joburg, yeah. Cape Town and Durban. Because the truth is when you fund something, identity politics go into it. If I only fund in Joburg, the stories will be of Joburg because Joburg will be the, yeah. the backdrop that's to that story. But then what is happening in Kuruman? What's happening in, I don't know, Kwakwa? Where are those stories if everything is being shot in Joburg? In my own work, I am really focused on policy and on the regulation of the film industry. There's so many points that we are not really putting ourselves on record. Within tech, for instance, we know that the streamers have essentially become part of big tech 
and are really moving the world. They're participating in international law conversations because they're giant global companies. I am trying to keep abreast of those developments through creatives represented. I also am in the process of recording a podcast around policy work. I also have something that I'm working on with a few other partners that I can't really mention now, but that would probably start coming out in December and January around policy work. So I think just is this, stay is tuned. The, is this, is this <laughs> the podcast? On social media. Beyond the podcast, beyond the podcast, we're going to have some written work. We're going to have some other content with other partners because my whole thing is trying to make policy work more conversational. I think you've seen just in the interview that there's just so much happening beyond the granular details and the granular details are informed by us having advocacy work within the policy framework. You can't really be worried about like, can I license something if you're not really making good advocacy positions on copyright? Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to be knowledgeable of what's happening in the bigger picture and what's happening around you. Everything from what is what is happening in big tech and what is happening with content moderation and what are we saying about representation and what are we tagging on like our own development needs in our industry? And then they filter down into the implementation, which is then like the granular details. So I'm I'm working on sort of making that more popular conversation. So then that that leads me to a very different type of question, since a lot of what you're talking about is um, getting more film people to be advocates, if not advocates, to at least... Um... Sorry, I also forgot to mention, people need to also plug in what the FPB is doing the Film and Publication Board. They're a content classifier. People would obviously know them if they're into content distribution. And they make sure that the internet is safe. Their main constituency is children, but really for all South Africans, that people know what they're watching when content goes on. People used to think that they're a censorship body, and I don't think that they really operate as such. And they've had some really interesting discussions. One of the discussions that I was involved in and that they also had publicly was the Film and Publication Board was working with the Gender Commission to see if they could create a specific content classifier for gender-based trigger warnings. Because within the South African context, we have so many people who would really want to know if they're going to see an incident of gender-based violence before it comes on. And putting like S for sex or V for violence doesn't quite cut it because I need to know whether you're raped. Yeah or whether I'm going to see molestation because that's a lived experience of so many South Africans. That is quite fascinating. Yeah, I thought so too. And I, I, that's what I say that good work is happening. Good work is happening all around. It's just that the industry needs to be less myopic. It needs to be less about what is happening about me, but what can happen for all of us and for people who experience our content. And I know that's difficult. It's a very privileged position to speak from, but it's the only way to actually grow it beyond being stuck on potential. Are you a telco mobile user? If so, Enraptured Odyssey has teamed up with other independent filmmakers to create the channel Mzansi TV, available on the new service Telcom Plus. Mzansi TV is an online channel curated with web series, short films, and comedy series independently produced by some of the most trailblazing youth here in Mzansi. For only three rand subscription per day, you get full access to all the content on Mzansi TV. The channel is available to Telcom Mobile and Telcom Data subscribers. I'm also trying to encourage 
I've sort of reached out to other people who are operating as legal services, consultancy services, policy services within the creative industries, within the film industry, to also try and get people start writing academically, because that's another place where a lot of laws get shifted, is when they have been put together and proposed in like a research academic format tends to be the starter of a lot of conversations, particularly if you're trying to change the way in which things have always been. And so we need more lawyers who are interested in this industry to do the work of research and of putting things out there. I think that's also something that the the different commissions do, the NFEF, the KZN Film Commission, Westgrove, they put out a lot of very good research and those research become advocacy points. One of my favorite examples is around the number of screens. So for years before the pandemic, we would research the number of screens that are in Africa. In Africa, we only have around a thousand screens. And to put that into context, most other countries, even just like France, have tens of thousands of screens. And the reason this factors in is really in award shows, because many award shows will say that, well, at least prior to the pandemic, would say that for you to be eligible for submission into this award, you need to have screened your content. But if we only have a thousand screens, then a lot of our content can't be submitted for award shows. And that's despite the fact that they're being watched across the content on mobile or on people's laptops. Yeah. And and within that a thousand screens, I believe like I think the stat was like 88% or something like that, or in South Africa. And it's like South Africa, exactly. then Nigeria, and then Kenya. And then literally there's places where there's I think only two screens. Like I'm not sure if it's Rwanda, but it's around there. It's Zambia, I think. You don't even have to go far. I mean, if you travel, go to Lesotho, go to Swaziland, go to Mozambique. You know, how many screens just around us in Southern Africa, we don't even have to go far to see that there is a lack, yeah. a huge lack of screens. But then the lack of screens doesn't just affect access to your audience or the audience's access to content, but it also affects our representation because then we cannot submit to a lot of judging platforms because they need you to have a run. And I think that what we've had at least now with the pandemic, is a bit of a leveling of that playing field because now everyone is having to watch on mobile or on people's laptops. And you found that bodies that were very reluctant to change that aspect to reconsider this requirement to have screened on the big screen have now you know, suspended that requirement for the pandemic. And so that's an opportunity for us also to jump on that and say, let that not be a temporary thing because we know we don't have screens. So if your requirement is to show on a screen and now you've had the test case for not showing on a screen, this is something that we need to jump on and advocate as a permanent thing. Because when we get our films and our content onto award shows, we expand our representation. I say this to say these are the kind of conversations that I am interested in doing. This is the kind of work that I'm trying to put out. I do still do consultancy from time to time based on like transactional legal services. So the normal things that you will go to a lawyer for your contracts, intellectual property, but I'm more interested in the systems within which we operate and in creating 
I don't want to say platforms, but forms of accessible legal content. That has also been a big part of what I've been exploring here in the US. I've worked for a year at a documentary film clinic and seeing how that operates, it's exciting for me to be able to transplant those kind of models because they exist in a way that can be quite sustainable for our purposes. The most pervading message I'm getting from you within this conversation is that as creatives or as filmmakers, we need to be better advocates for ourselves right so what i'd want to ask you is for anyone who's listening who may have not known about 80 percent of what we've actually discussed how do you become a better advocate or a better person and because you've spoken about when nfef needs to make policy changes how do you then become a better participant and be able to knowing that whether it's about the nfef or swift or sag after what are the steps that one can take if they want to now become a better advocate for the film industry where are some of the the beginning steps that they can then um fit to their yeah put their feet in or think they're i can't find the analogy i want to use so i'm just gonna be, <laughs> just gonna be <laughs> it's okay i i got you <laughs> i've been just. looking for that analogy this uh, wasn't coming <laughs> um I would say social media is really good. Keep an eye out. There are so many different platforms. Follow me. Specific what are your handles? Twitter. Sorry. So that when, when... So I've got two handles. My main handle is that Ajwa at that Ajwa on Twitter. And then I also have my creatives represented handle. It's called Creatives Rep on Twitter. If you go to my handle, that Ajwa, I have all of my handles in my bio. I also created a list. I'm adding to that list every single day of other people I see on social media who are tweeting about these topics, who are interested in these topics. I would say follow all of the organizations we've met, we've mentioned in this conversation, everyone from the Black Film Collective to IPO to the Writers Guild to the Actors Guild, to the NFEF, the KZN Film Commission, the Gauteng Film Commission, Westgrow, follow all of them. Follow Arterial Network South Africa because they also do really good policy conversations. So that's step one. When they have panels and when they have debates, attend. Because a big frustration of mine was always when we have, when we organize conversations about these things, the number of people who attend, it's, it's quite pitiful. And yet these are the big questions and these are the questions that actually inform the space in which you operate. So when you see a panel being posted by any one of these groups, attend, go and learn. And don't just attend when the panel is what should what legal services should you know as a creative or what funding, you know yeah. what I mean? Don't only attend yeah. because there's something that you can gain. Attend when the panel is talking about content moderation. Attend when the panel is by the FPB. FPB just changed their classification guidelines and they begged for weeks for submissions around their new classification guidelines. I don't know how many submissions I, they got, but I know a lot of people were not talking about them. Department of Communications recently put out a white paper, if I'm not mistaken, a really brilliant one around audio visual, the audio visual sector and how the Department of Communications is looking at affecting it. That has been an ongoing document, always a good time to put together submissions. I think that a lot of people know about the copyright amendment bill, but it's only the start. There's so much happening. And so when you see those conversations, be as interested as if they were saying, here's some money, here's how to apply. Because you're actually going to get back 
I think, I won't say as much because, you know, I don't want to speak for people's pockets, but in terms of long-term sustainability, these are the conversations that you need to be participating in because what you don't want is people who don't work in the industry making the final call on those decisions. And they themselves have tried to reach out and say, what do you think about the decisions we're going to make? And people just don't participate in those conversations. So number one, I would say go on social media and follow all of these accounts. But then when they actually put out that there's a discussion forum, there's a panel, there's a new draft, there's some a research paper. I mean, on the NFAF's website, you can go and you can read all of the research that they do. I also forgot the Cultural Observatory. They do a ton of research. You can read what they do. The National Arts Council does a ton of research. And when they do, and you read that research, you can see, oh, okay, this is what's going to actually offend me. This is what the future looks like. Am I comfortable about it? Do I want to change it? Do I want to say something about it? And then the second step is saying something about it. And that, again, if you don't have time, that can take the form of social media. Tweet them back. Say, this is what you think about it, and I don't like it, or I do. I think another thing that we sometimes struggle is we struggle to bite the hand that feeds us. I think people are very wary of having a voice because they don't want to affect, you know, they don't want to be blackballed. They don't want to be the black sheep of the industry. But again, are you willing to take the short-term discomfort for long-term sustainability? That's a choice that everyone needs to make. But if you see these conversations happening, participate in them, amplify them. I say this to say there's a lot of very good work happening. There's a lot of equally excited individuals like myself who are trying to move things forward, but they need the buy-in of every single person. There shouldn't be anyone who works in the film and television industry who thinks that this isn't important. Because I think, honestly, if you were to ask most people, most people are uncomfortable. They're not satisfied with the way things are but how are they going to change if the majority are not participating which then leads me to what i think is like my final like major question what does with everything that you know what does the current future of um south african or even Af- the african programming space because even though we call it the film space we've been talking about television web and so i'm just going to put it all under programming so african programming also with all of these international players who have not only come, but are now literally building themselves here with your Netflixes, with your Disney's and all these, what does the future of African programming look like or the state of it currently look like through your eyes? This is something that is very urgent. So one of the courses I studied when I was at UCLA was studying the guilds. In studying the guilds, you see that every single one of these guilds has an agreement, either collectively with all of these different programmers or broadcasters that you mentioned, streamers, platforms that you mentioned, either they have individual agreements with them or they have agreements with like collections of them, right? All of these um, broadcasters, the streamers that are setting up all over the world have decided for themselves how they want to buy content and how they want to pay for that content, both in the initial transaction and any future transactions if they are, right? Yeah. Us as Africans, we are, in my opinion, not really, I mean, like I said, A, we're not moving collectively. We're not bargaining collectively. But we're also not really doing the work to compare 
For instance, Netflix buys outright, right? So you don't have a backend. You have Disney, which has introduced a whole new point system. You have all of the other, I think, the other streamers that may be like using the old royalty residual MAGA based system. What are we saying about our own terms? You know, if you go as an individual, you will sell on their terms and their terms will be to make them money. Yeah. Because their imperative is to grow their library. They want to grow dominance so that they can have access to more subscribers. So what are we saying our content is worth? Why is it too late in the game for us to create our own content library and give it a value because currently the value is determined by them and the value is determined by their perception of audience. We know who is interested in our film. And that's why I was trying to say, think of Nigerian films, people who watch some of those films, it's their favorite films. They can watch them all day, every day, every time that they have a break to rest, they want to watch that film. Even a lot of your shows that South Africans watch, let's say on a Sunday night, those are their go-to films. They don't watch them out of pity or because they're feeling patriotic. They watch them because they love them. Do these people who are buying our content know our audience like we know our audience? Know how our audience loves our content like we know our audience? I don't think they do. And yet we're letting them set the parameters, the number. So. I know I sound like a broken record, but for me, it's about selling content as a collective, selling content based on our established terms, not just as individual, because every time we go as individuals, it will only be on their terms. I think particularly as people who create content for a global Black audience as well. I mean, one of my my favorite observations just in terms of like Black content is um, a really good show on Netflix called Top Boy. And Top Boy was originally made in the UK and it was cancelled after a few seasons. And when it was cancelled, there was like uproar because it's a brilliant piece of content. But the audience was a Black audience and how big is a Black audience in the UK? But if you were asking the global Black audience, that's a potential go-to show. And that was seen when the when they picked it up for Netflix and they've now made another season. It was trending number one and they're going to make another yeah. season, you know? And this wasn't even just like a, it was cancelled and then it was back on Netflix a year later. It was, it was on Netflix like five years later. Exactly. And that's because before they said it was not worthwhile. They said, look at your audience. They determined the audience. They didn't look beyond the one country and they said, well, you know, it only gets so few views because there's so few um, people interested in black stories. So it was it was undervalued is what I say. And now when you see it on Netflix, it was clearly undervalued because now everyone's waiting for the next season. So I say that for our own content, we know the value of our content. We know when people are watching the river that it's like everyone's talking about it. Beyond even just South Africa, same happened with Generations. Generations was something that was watched by Black audiences around the world. I grew up in Kenya. Generations was on in Kenya as a primetime show. And yet, if you had asked certain people what the value of Generations was, they wouldn't have described it as a global hit international show. And that's what it was for a lot of people. So I think that when um, when we see these amazing opportunities to sell our content, to new streamers, to big tech, to different broadcasters around the world, we need to, before we sell, determine what we say our content is worth based on the facts, based on 
using the lawyers, based on using the accountants, based on using the actuaries, we must determine what our content is worth. And then you approach a bargaining table together because you need collective bargaining if you're going to actually negotiate terms. And then that's the foot at which we approach a lot of these entities. It's all good and well for us to see our content on different platforms, but it mustn't be undervalued. Well, thank you so much. This has been one of the most informative, <laughs> at least in my opinion, of the entire uh, of the entire series. I've learned a lot, and I know that I have a lot of uh, I have I think of the organizations you mentioned. I have about like four that I need to now join. So I'm going to be doing my my homework, and I hope that the people who've been listening who are active filmmakers or part of active part of the film community do the same thing yeah thank you so much for 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 this i know it's taken a while to have this conversation but i definitely believe it was worth the wait and worth the trouble that it came with i mean i'm very happy and look i'd love to be invited back so if ever you have a different angle think of me um i love, love i am love look i'm i'm about a hundred percent sure that once this one comes out i'm going to get so many questions that we're going to need to have a um a follow-up just to kind of because i don't even think we went through all the questions that we needed to have for this one but it's it's no that the, there's a lot that we can cover specifically because this is very much foundational um conversations and i think these are some of the most important conversations to have because they affect how we move and not just the creative aspect and sometimes I believe that we give not too much conversation to the creative but there needs to be as much conversation about the creative as there is about the foundational so that when we do get to the creative we can have as much fun with the creative without feeling like we're getting ripped off or that that we're not fully prepared to be able to be fully creative if I'm making any sense in that I think I completely agree and if, and that's how we have to position this conversation is about this is about accessing our full potential if we're going to have the creative industry that we know we know we already have we know that the world wants we know that the world is not ready for if we're going to have it, then we need to value it first and we need to organize it first. And once we've done that, then we can put it out there to the rest of the world. But I think that we've just been going, you know, and that was fine when we were making 15 films a year and it was a novel thing. But now we have something going. We have to move into phase two. And how do we do that? Do you have any final words that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we wrap? I think I would just say organize 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 all of the entities that i have mentioned before a lot of them work on a voluntary basis so this is no room for blame they either work on a voluntary basis or within a budget that doesn't really cover everything that they need to do but if we continue to amplify the work that they do to read the work that they do to engage the work that they do then they're going to get more resources and then they can advocate better for the collective but the collective needs to participate and i think to date i would say that the collective is not participating at the at the at the level that it needs to be for the changes that we need to create that was the sixth episode of the african film podcast with adra ankoma thank you so much for listening 
I am Yalezon Jiguna, the host and editor of this specific podcast, and this episode was sponsored by the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. I would like to take this time to acknowledge the amazing team that helped put this podcast together, including my co-producer, Kibari Wanjiguna, the music composer, Katlejo Doshi Temo, who made the original music you're listening to right now, as well as our voiceover artist, Nomava Kibari. To find out more about African Film, do follow our social pages, which is African Film, which is A-F-R-I-Q-U-A-N Film on both Instagram and Twitter. You can also check out our website, enraptured.africa, where you can find the full show notes. Or if you'd like to email us, you can also email us at africanfilm at gmail.com. If you'd like to check out some of our other podcasts, you can also check out the Next Gen Greats podcast, which is hosted by myself. The Next Gen Greats podcast is a space where we get artists to take us through the inspiration behind some of their projects whether it be an EP, a mixtape or a producer's catalogue. You can also check out Givenomics which is a podcast hosted by Kibare where he gives an economics enthusiast perspective on things. You can find those links in our description below as well as in our show notes. Once again thank you so much for listening and we'll see you at our next episode.